Hello and welcome to the IOTA Unum podcasts from the Latin Mass Society. In the company of some great friends of tradition from around the world, we will be drilling into some of the fundamental issues affecting us today in the church and the world. Okay, well, uh, very nice to be here. Um, it's been a great honour for me to be part of the IOTA Unum series in, in the organisation of these talks. And it's very nice for me to... Uh, to deliver one, um, so thank you for coming. In this paper, employing the thought of the philosopher Robert Speyman, I'll aim to offer an account of the human person as distinct from what we mean by the human being. From there, I'll consider the consequences of this account for what I deem to be our emerging technocratic age and the resulting difficulties we may face. And for such a task, I will partly rely on the thought of the early counter-revolutionary thinkers Joseph de Maistre and Edmund Burke, on whom uh, I've been researching for the last four years uh, and try to apply their insights to our own time. The title of this talk is Technocracy and the Process of Unpersoning. In Western philosophy, there is a long-standing distinction between the human being and the human person. It is clear that the former term denotes a mammal of a particular species as a member of that species. That is the human being. What a human person is, however, is far more controversial. In the work Persons, the Difference Between Someone and Something, first published in German in 1996, Speyman sought to trace the origins of the Western conception of personhood. Speyman holds that person does not denote, and I'm quoting him here directly, quote, person does not denote a natural kind, end quote. That is, the term person refers to no genus or species category. Moreover, Speyman argues that person does not denote a class of any kind, and he offers two reasons for this. First, when we refer to someone as a person, by that we do not mean that he is an instance of a generic category. And whilst, as he puts it, persons do in fact invariably belong to some natural species, they do not belong to it in the same way that other individual organisms belong to their species, end quote. Second, he goes on to say, quote, when we apply the term person to individuals, we accord a special status to them, namely that of inviolability, end quote. So for Speyman, when we refer to someone as a person, we are not simply indicating that he is a human being, one example of a natural kind, but we're referring directly to an individual. Also, recognising someone's personhood 
necessarily entails the acknowledgement of a certain moral character and protected status, which is possessed by virtue of the individual he is. Whilst there's much dispute among modern philosophers over which members of the human species may be recognised as persons, all agree that a certain moral character and some kind of protected status follow from being a person. On the point of the relationship between species and personhood, Speyman observes the following, quote, While the word man denotes a species, a natural kind defined by the specific predicates of its <clears throat> members, person does not denote the kind, but the member of the kind, and not as a member of the kind, but as an individual. That means not a concept, but a name. End quote. So, as Speyman understands the term, whilst person does not refer to the species kind, but to a specific member of that kind, p person differs from a reference to this or that human being in that person does not refer to a specific member of the species as a member of the species. Rather, person refers to this or that individual as someone who happens to have the nature of that species kind. Thus, persons could conceivably be beings who do not belong to the human species. The gods of Mount Olympus, the hobbits of Middle-earth, the angels described in the scriptures are all seemingly persons, but none of them are human. Hence, Speyman concludes that in referring to someone as a person, we are not simply applying an abstract concept to a particular being, but concretely recognising another I, a name. Speyman captures this point with his phrase, person is a generalizable proper noun. Here we can reconcile Speyman's account with the classic definition from Boethius, that, quote, a person is an individual substance of rational nature, end quote. For only a thinking being can exist or live as an individual, rather than merely as a member of a species, whose behaviour can be explained in entirety by reference to the species' characteristics. As Speyman writes, quote, an animal of one species reacts aggressively, where the animal of another species turns tail. A nature is a principle of species reaction. With the concept of the person, however, we come to think of the particular individual as being more basic than its nature. This is not to suggest that these individuals have no nature and start out by deciding for themselves what they are to be. What they do is assume a new relation to their nature they freely endorse the laws of their being, or alternatively, they rebel against them and deviate. Speyman continues, because they are thinking beings, they cannot be categorised exhaustively as members of their species, only as individuals who exist in their nature, that is to say, they exist as persons, end quote. 
As Feynman explains here, we can understand why a deer, for example, behaves in a particular way by understanding the species of deer to which this deer belongs. Human persons, however, as they develop, come to understand their nature and discover that they do not belong to it, but that it belongs to them. They possess their nature and can choose to endorse its laws or diverge from them. This may bring to mind the words that Pico de la Mirandola, after whom my dog is named, some of you might know, <laughs> uh, uh, places in the mouth of God, uh, spoken to Adam at the beginning of Pico's work on the dignity of, of man. Quote, In conformity with thy free judgment, in whose hands I have placed thee, thou art confined by no bounds. Thou mayest sculpt thyself into whatever shape thou dost prefer. Thou canst grow downward into the lower natures which are the brutes. Thou canst again grow upward from thy soul's reason into the higher natures which are divine. End quote. Now, Pico has at times been interpreted as having a hypervoluntarist account of human nature and agency, but in fact, he quite clearly thinks that the agency that follows from possession of natures by persons is not arbitrary at all, and depending on respect for reason, one may consequently approximate a brutish or a divine thing. The conception of person with which I'm dealing, the philosophical structure of which Spayman seeks to bring to the fore, is central to the Western intellectual tradition and is also sewn into our language. Consider what we mean when we describe a place as being impersonal or request that someone be personally present or the exception we take to being referred to in the third person as he or she when personally present. Some of you might recall the, um, the, the uh, line, uh, who's she, the cat's mother? I was, um, uh, uh, I was chastised with that a few times as a child. In all of these cases, the unique, non-transferable individual is at risk of being eclipsed. From where did this notion of personhood come? As is well known, the term has its origins in the ancient Greek plays, with prosopon initially referring to the theatrical masks worn by the actors, and then later to the roles the actors were playing. Person was later adopted as a legal term in Roman law to refer to categories of human agency and culpability. <laughs> person has also always been used as a grammatical term to distinguish between first, second and third person modes of address. The term as we have it now, however, with all its pre-legal, moral and political significance, is historically bound up with its transformation by theologians in their attempts to understand the triune nature of God and the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Theologians had the difficult task of affirming the triune nature of God, which they judged to be revealed in the Bible, 
in such a way as to maintain the distinction of the three members of the Godhead and simultaneously avoid polytheism, the notion that there are more than one God. They saw that the grammatical use of person implied relatedness, as a first, second or third person is always in relation, whilst leaving the subject in himself unchanged. This seemed to capture the nature of the divine persons who are understood to be unchanging and eternal and yet have, as Speyman puts it, quote, their reality in self-giving and self-receiving, end quote. Theologians also had the challenging task of maintaining that Jesus Christ is uncreated and divine, the eternal logos, and also that he is a fully human man. They had to be careful to make this case without teaching that Jesus Christ is some sort of half-divine and half-human hybrid, like the classical hero Perseus or Hercules. By applying the concept of personhood, theologians could say that Jesus Christ is a divine person who has human nature. Given that one only has to possess human nature to be a human being, that he is a divine person makes him no less a human being, as he is said to have wholly assumed human nature from his mother at the moment of the incarnation. Jesus Christ, then, could be said to be a human man, and fully so, by being a bearer of human nature, and yet a person as the unique individual he is in relation to the Father and the Holy Ghost. From the challenges posed by these two Christian doctrines, a conception of personhood arose. A person is a unique, individual subject. He is the bearer of a nature who cannot be exhaustively explained by reference to that nature. And he is a person inasmuch as he is in relation to other persons. This last facet is perhaps the most important. As Speyman notes, quote, the difference between the person and its condition, or the kind of being it is, is found immediately in the fact that a person so understood can only be thought of in relation to other persons, end quote. How did this theological notion of personhood applied exhaustively to divine persons, sorry, it applied exclusively to divine persons, come to be applied to human beings? For Speyman, the answer is found in the Christian notion of the heart. In ancient times, the majority of people were slaves of some sort or another. This was generally not thought to be due to any fault of their own, Slaves were slaves because they were either deemed mentally inferior and therefore incapable of leisure, that is, activities enjoyed for their own sake, or simply the conditions into which they had been born meant they could, they could survive only in servile subordination to a free man who could provide nourishment and shelter. In the teaching of Jesus Christ, however, slavery and liberty are primarily presented as interior conditions and hinge on what kind of heart one has. Speyman explains this in the following way. Quote, 
It is not the lottery of nature, a function of the genes and education, that determined whether or not the absolute claim of the rational good prevails in any human life. The basis lies in the human being, in the human being, him or herself. Following the New Testament, Christianity calls this basis the heart. Speyman continues, Unlike reason, which is by definition always rational, but is sometimes unenlightened and ineffective in exerting control, the heart is always in control, but makes its own decision as to who or what it will accept direction from. On what basis does it make that decision? On the basis that it is a heart of such and such a kind, with such and such a nature, about which it can do nothing? No. According to this account, the heart is not a nature. There is no condition of the heart, no specific quality that could be a basis of defection from good or for love of darkness. The heart is its own basis and needs no further basis, end quote. As Speyman points out in this passage, according to Christianity, the truly human life, the life which lays claim to the rational good in an absolute way, as he puts it, is not available only to those in a societally rare or privileged position. Rather, living a truly human life is available to all and depends only on what kind of heart one possesses. The philosophical tradition downstream from Socrates had taught that a truly human life is the fruit of liberation from ignorance and the acquisition of good habits. Now consider Benedict Joseph Labre, the 18th century homeless Frenchman who died of malnutrition in Rome at the age of 35, or Maria Goretti, the 20th century rural Italian girl who lived in desperate poverty and was murdered at age 11 during a rape attempt. Neither Plato nor Aristotle would have seen these two people as examples of human flourishing. <laughs> From one perspective, the lives of these figures were wretched. Nonetheless, both Labre and Goretti have been declared saints and therefore exemplars of human flourishing from the Christian perspective. Jesus Christ taught that true liberation is not brought about by adding on to nature knowledge and good habits of conduct, as the Greeks had claimed, but by the transformation of what is most fundamental in the individual. The kind of individual one is, as Christ puts it, unfolds out of the heart. The heart is presented by Christianity as that which is most fundamental in human existence, the foundation and basis beyond which one can look no further for an account of who and what we are. And the heart does not tell us who and what we are as humans, but as individuals. As Speyman puts it, the heart is not a nature. According to Speyman, so bound up with the Christian theological tradition is our conception of the human person that he believes we risk losing the notion of the human person altogether as it drifts ever further from that tradition. Quote, Without Christian theology, 
we would have no name for what we now call persons. And since persons do not simply occur in nature, that means we would have been without them altogether. Now, that's not to say that we can only speak intelligibly of persons on explicitly theological suppositions, though it is conceivable that the disappearance of the theological dimension of the idea could in the long run bring about the disappearance of the idea itself. I, I, I don't know how many of you have had this experience. I, I've attended a number of particularly bioethics conferences where um, everyone is struggling to come up with a shared understanding of what the person is. And it becomes more and more confused and more and more clouded and, until eventually someone starts just positing adjectives. And what you find they're actually doing is doing something as sort of tautological and trite as just, just um, describing an adult human being. Um, and, and so there's the, 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 this, the whole notion, as we have kind of, um, as, as the concept of personhood has been orphaned, from its, uh, its context in Christendom, to put it in the loosest way possible, that the, the concept itself has become completely eclipsed. And, and the, the current right-speak that, that people are trying to uh, develop to save uh, the, the, the idea uh, d does not seem to be working. <clears throat> now, in the ex excerpt that I just read from Speyman, he states that persons don't simply occur in nature, and he reiterates that persons come down to us from the Christian theological tradition. Now, my own uh, mentor who supervised my, my master's and my doctorate, uh, Sir Roger Scruton, in his works The Face of God and the Soul of the World, he also claims that persons do not simply occur in nature. But he argues that they belong to the category of art in the Aristotelian sense. That is to say, they are a construct of the interpersonal relations that form societies. Now, these two viewpoints are not actually irreconcilable. Persons, as we understand them, may be a construct of society, but nonetheless, plausibly at least in the light of Speyman's account of a specific kind of society, namely a society formed in the light of Christian theology. That is, at least, to where Speyman's position points. Clearly, we can speak comprehensively of human persons without explicit recourse to Christian theology. We can observe, however, that the concept is increasingly slipping away from us, with ever more disagreement about the essential content of the concept and who or what may be identified by it. Today, for example, many claim that a limited number of human beings can be identified as persons. And yet many also claim that certain or all non-human animals are persons. And these claims are often made by the same people. As is widely acknowledged, we are creatures of habit perhaps without consistently returning to those theological reflections by which our concept of the human person arose, this concept finds itself orphaned and risks losing 
its content altogether. I don't by this suggest that only a society composed of theologians will retain the proper content of the concept of personhood. In the light of Speyman's account, though, it is plausible that only a society in which theology's insights are experienced in an embodied, affective, organic and habitual way can resist the tendency to let the concept of the human person slip away. Why does man suffer from such a tendency? We might answer with the words of Scruton in The Soul of the World, quote, the temptation to look on others as objects is what we mean or ought to mean by original sin. The meaning of this assertion will hopefully become clearer as I continue. According to the historian Christopher Dawson, during early evangelization efforts of Europe, as settled communities incorporated the liturgical experience into their lives, the rise of a new form of relationality between people can be traced. I'll quote Dawson here. When the social revival of Western Europe began, a new development was inspired by religious motives and proceeded directly from the tradition of the spiritual society. Everywhere, men became conscious of their common citizenship in the great religious commonwealth of Christendom. And this spiritual citizenship was the foundation of a new society. As members of the feudal state, men were separated by the countless divisions of allegiance and jurisdiction. They were parceled out like sheep with the land on which they lived among different lordships. But as members of the church, they met on a common ground. Before Christ, writes St Ivo of Chartres, there is neither free man nor serf. All who participate in the same sacraments are equal. End quote. Dawson is describing the period following the fall of the Roman Empire in the West and after the Great Migration, during which Saxons, Vikings, Huns, Slavs, Lombards, Goths, Vandals, Franks and other loosely affiliated peoples roamed across Europe and North Africa, eventually forming settled communities. It was during this time that the Church renewed its efforts to assume Europe into itself, out of which emerged early medieval Christendom. As Dawson notes, the population of this new society continued to live in hierarchical communities to rule and to be ruled, and no doubt the lives of all were hard and filled with suffering. For the first time in history, in the history of these fierce and unruly people, however, Dawson claims that it was possible for them to see one another as equal heirs to something, something that transcended everything else, in fact, namely God himself. According to Dawson, in the newly evangelised societies, people ceased to see one another only under the aspect of temporal life and began to see each other under a different aspect altogether, in which no one was barred from membership of the spiritual aristocracy of the saints merely by virtue of being a serf. To transpose Dawson's observation into the terminology of contemporary experimental psychology, 
which is currently being popularized via YouTube by Professor John Viveki of Toronto University. The reciprocal God-to-human and human-to-God interpersonal relatedness derived by society's members from their supernatural transformation gave rise to the metacognitive condition of seeing one's neighbour from an adopted supranatural perspective. One's neighbour, the concrete person one encounters and must live and engage with, is not interchangeable with man. On the Christian account, it is not an abstraction, a category, or a member of a species kind as member of that species kind that the Christian must see from the supra-natural perspective. It is this concrete person who is known by name, who is encountered and called to account, and by whom the Christian is encountered and called to account, that the Christian must see from this supra-natural perspective. If the Christian is called to love humankind, then, it is as a conglomerate of irreplaceable and non-substitutional individuals, not as an abstract category. Hence, according to Speyman, Christianity and the life of Caritas Christianity entailed required a generalizable proper noun, namely person. In a society in which the person has emerged, where is the person encountered? Scruton argues that the person is encountered uniquely in the face. The object in the world that provides the pathway out of the world of objects and into the realm of subjects. That is the human face. He explains this view in the following striking extract. Quote, we don't make a distinction in our ordinary encounters between a person and his face. When I confront another person face to face, I am not confronting a physical part of him, as I am when, for example, I look at his shoulder or his knee. I am confronting him, the individual centre of consciousness, the free being who reveals himself in the face of another like me. There are deceiving faces but not deceiving elbows. When I read a face, I am in some way acquainting myself with the way things seem to another person. And the expression on a face is already an offering in the world of mutual responsibilities. It is a projection in the space of interpersonal relations of a particular person's being there. To put this another way, the face is the subject revealing itself in the world of objects, end quote. As Scruton elucidates, the face, unlike any other part of the body, discloses the person. I won't say behind the face, but emanated in the face, inviting one into shared relatedness with the person encountered. One can, however, examine a face without seeing the person, as a doctor may do when looking for signs of a skin condition. So too, an optician can look at my eyes without looking into my eyes. The face is not the person, but the person is disclosed in the face. The person, we can say, is a condition of relatedness that emerges between faces. 
As Scruton puts it in another work, relation is built into the very idea of the human person, who is a first person held within the second person standpoint, like a lodestar in a magnetic field. I am a person because I stand in the first person standpoint. I am an I. But I stand in that standpoint because I adopt the second person perspective. Put another way, I am an I because you are you. How might our own political and social course be threatening and undermining the interpersonal relatedness wherein the person subsists? The philosopher Michael Oakeshott, despite being an atheist, believed that with the arrival of secularism, it would be necessary for a technocratic class of so-called experts to arise and increasingly appropriate political power. Oakeshott put this trajectory down to the loss of providentialism as a major theme of political thought. Given that, Oakeshott reasoned, the notion has faded that the future of our political life is in the hands of God, it becomes imperative that man develop an a priori abstract set of formulae that can serve as a kind of manual for how the political machine can operate. The technical complexities of such a manual would only be understood by those who had the technical expertise to function as the political machinists that were needed to secure the polity's future. Thus, the consequence of the 18th century enthusiasm for political manuals, better known as written constitutions, is the rise of technocracy. For Oakeshott, this transposition of rationalism into politics can in large part be accounted for, as noted, by the decline in divine providence. Quote, rationalism in politics is certainly closely allied with a decline in the belief in providence. A beneficent and infallible technique replaced a beneficent and infallible God, and where providence was not available to correct the mistakes of men, it was all the more necessary to prevent such mistakes. End quote. As Oakeshott explains, diminishment in belief in divine providence necessitated a widespread change of mentality, and people began to conceive of themselves as being the sole determinants for the development of political life, the constitution the arrangements of peoples, as well as their customs, manners, and so forth. The assumption was established that there was no hand besides the human hand that was guiding such affairs. According to Oakeshott's analysis, political technique, that is, the seeking to apply a priori abstract principles, became paramount. In turn, human communities were assumed to be more like machines, requiring the correct manual than organic, historically conditioned, and unique moral aggregates. Centuries before Oakeshott, Edmund Burke seems to have suspected that the prioritising of technical knowledge over prudence and experientially acquired knowledge would lead to a settlement increasingly run not by statesmen, but by a class of technocratic managers. This suspicion is voiced as a concern that a 
democratic age would eventually give rise to, quote, a mischievous and ennoble oligarchy with a purely geometrical and arithmetical conception of society, end quote. In opposition to the assumption that favours technical knowledge, Burke writes the following, quote, Though you were to join in the commission all the directors of the two academies to the directors of Revolutionary France's central bank, one old experienced peasant is worth them all. He continues, I have got more information upon a curious and interesting branch of husbandry in one short conversation with a Carthusian monk than I have derived from all the bank directors that I have ever conversed with. End quote. <laughs> Whilst I think Burke and Oakeshott were right to see the connection between the decline of providentialism, the rise of revolutionism, and the emergence of a powerful political class of technocratic managers, I think they failed to see many consequences of this new social paradigm for the great populaces that would have to endure such a rationalist regime. For clarity on this aspect, I suggest the Burkean analysis be conjoined with the Maestrian analysis. For the 18th century counter-revolutionary Joseph de Maistre, the consequence of a hyper-rationalist technocratic regime is mass slavery. One of the remarkable insights of Maestre was that the establishment of an anti-polity, a slave-dependent settlement, would first require the disappearance of the interpersonal relatedness that had characterised European civilization. Such coldness would first be required for the widespread establishment of interior slavery among the populace. This coldness would unfold out of the widespread breakdown of civil society, that pre-political moral community presupposed by the emergence of the state. People then would cease to relate to one another as I to you. Rather, in such social breakdown, everyone becomes a third personal object, a he or she, from which each eventually becomes a usable, transferable, disposable, commodifiable it. This adoption of a widespread third-personal perspective could be brought about, according to Maestra, by the privileging of appetite. Once persons were, theen, were seen through the prism of appetite, they would be reduced to instances of their species kind, mere human beings, and as objects rather than subjects. Ultimately, they would be considered only from the viewpoint of use. The interior condition of appetitive slavery in Maestra's analysis is not a condition that is foreign to us. It is, in fact, our proper condition when cut off from what he calls the supernatural principle, what we more specifically call the life of grace. Maestra observes that slavery was normative to human societies prior to the arrival of Christianity. Drawing directly from St. Augustine, Maestra holds that there is no true polity without the social operation of grace. Man is evil, Maestra thinks, and therefore, were he to possess political and social liberty, 
while still a slave to his interior appetites, political life would collapse and the national community would be plunged into chaos. In Maestra's own words, quote, Whoever has studied sufficiently this unfortunate nature knows that man in general, if left to himself, is simply too wicked to be free. Let each one examine the nature of man in his own heart, and he will understand that, wherever civil liberty shall belong to all alike, there will no longer be any means, without extraordinary aid, of governing man as national bodies. Hence, Maestra continues, slavery was constantly the natural state of a very great portion of mankind until the establishment of Christianity. And, as the good sense of man in general perceived, the necessity of this order of things, it was never opposed, either by laws or arguments. End quote. According to this passage, whilst a slave in his interior life, man cannot be free in his political life. Furthermore, man does not possess within himself the means to be emancipated from the interior tyranny of his own disordered desires. Human nature requires, as he puts it, extraordinary aid, something given to his nature from without. Without this extraordinary aid, which Maestra says comes through the establishment of Christianity, that's his term, the majority of the population experience interior liberty from their appetites only by being afforded no social liberty. That is, by being slaves to masters who prevent them from acting as they wish. The masters believe themselves to be free, but they are slaves to their appetites. Since they are few, however, they do not produce anarchy and chaos, but tyranny. Some of you might be familiar with Maestri is clearly taking up the argument that is uh, developed about the the interior slavery of the tyrant in Plato, Plato's Republic. Maestra further conveys his view in the following passage, quote, It would be superfluous to prove at length what, what, what none are ignorant of, that the world, until the time of Christianity, was always covered with slaves, and that the sages never blamed the custom. This proposition cannot be shaken. But at length the divine law appeared on the earth. It at once took possession of the heart of man and changed it in a manner calculated to excite the never-failing admiration of every true observer. Religion, he continues, at its very commencement, laboured above all things and unceasingly to abolish slavery. And this no other religion, no other legislator, no other philosopher had ever ventured to undertake or had ever dreamt of. Christianity, which acted by divine power, for this reason, also acted gently and slowly. For all legitimate operations, of whatever kind they may be, are always imperceptibly carried on. Wherever there is noise, tumult, destruction, it may be relied upon that crime or folly is at work, end quote. So in this extract, Maestra again affirms that mass slavery was the norm until the arrival of Christianity. 
This religion brought with it a principle which took possession of the heart of man, as Maestro puts it. Christianity acted with this heart-possessing divine power, brought slavery to an end by moral transformation, not by uprising and upheaval. Christianity did not tumultuously overthrow the slavery system, but acted gently and slowly. In Maestra's view, the most radical social transformation in history took place without a revolution. Social and political freedom is an effect, according to Maestra, of moral freedom, which humankind is unable to possess without supernatural transformation. This interior transformation concurrently brings about social transformation, the former nonetheless being logically prior to the latter. Supernatural grace, by transforming the hearts of men, liberates them from the captivity in which they are conceived. According to Maestra, the retreat from grace, which characterises modernity, will eventually universalise the old slavery of the masters and change nations into anti-societies directed by passion, with the masses led this way and that by appeals to their appetites from those also led by appetite. Such nations, the Maestrian scholar Carolina Armenteros comments, are plunged into a vicious cycle where vice is a duty and immorality the necessary corollary of servitude and which they cannot exit through their own efforts. End quote. In the Maestrian analysis, grace has eliminated slavery by making it unnecessary. By withdrawing from grace, humankind has made slavery necessary. To Maestra, this new slavery, universal slavery to appetite, is a kind far more terrible than any which has hitherto existed. Since a polity consisting of such appetitive slaves cannot endure, the establishment of this slave settlement will necessitate a regime comprising a combination of both totalitarian and authoritarian approaches. Maestra insists that the new world that is unfolding in the modern age will only undergo, quote, more commotions and good order will not be thoroughly established until either slavery or religion be restored. End quote. The modern world, according to Maestra, has before it the choices of Christianity or slavery. Quote, the wills of men must be either purified or enchained. There is no medium. End quote. So when Scruton writes that the temptation to look on others as objects is what we mean or ought to mean by original sin, end quote, He's referring to a recurring motif among those authors who are concerned with the eclipsing of personhood in the modern age. That eclipsing of personhood is the fundamental prerequisite for a return of the kind of graceless moral slavery entailed by the doctrine of original sin. That is, the disappearance of man as an accountable subject who can call others to account and his replacement with man as an object of use. Hilaire Belloc, at the beginning of the Servile State, 
remarks with astonishment at the speed with which the early medieval slave became a serf, the serf a peasant, the peasant a freeman, and the freeman an esquire. This evolution of social standing coincided with the permeation of society with the liturgical life, as Dawson highlights. So too with the retreat of the polity from that liturgical life, we ought to expect to see the reversal of this process, a devolution of the common man back to a state of slavery. If an unaccountable, extremely well-financed technocratic class who saw the world almost exclusively from the perspective of use, seeing everything as a resource or commodity, became the major political dominating presence, what would they do? Well, there are a few things that immediately come to mind as especially advantageous for such a group of people. I think as a fundamental precondition, if I were among their number, I would treat man as if he were an abstraction whose purposes I could determine, and I would treat all localism, national loyalties, family ties, and anything that particularised man as a concrete being in a web of relations, as a threat to my own will for him. I would also treat man as if he were exclusively driven by appetite and could be exhaustively explained by reference to appetitive impulses, for that is what I need him to become. In other words, I would treat man as homo consumericus, a consumer by nature. To that end, I would seek to cultivate in him, in him his appetites as the highest governing interior power over his life. And I would lead him this way and that by appeals to those appetites. From such preconditions, the next step would be to privilege technical education. What used to be called the servile arts as distinct from the liberal arts or humane disciplines. There's nothing wrong with this education per se, but it is an education for the sake of something else. It's not an education of ends. Put differently, technical education is an education you can do something with, whereas humane education is an education that can do something with you. If I were seeking to move the populace into a slave settlement, I would not see the end for which people exist to be that of flourishing, but that of utility. In turn, I would privilege technical education, and I would subordinate humane education to ends approved by me and my fellow technocrats, reorganising humane education departments as schools of activism that accelerate the transition to a slave settlement. From there it would be necessary to divide up society, pit the nation's members against one another so that everyone was seen as a he or a she and then eventually as an it. I would want people to be motivated not by local attachments but by their opposite, distrust of neighbour. I might, for instance, confine the populace to their homes and get them to spy on one another, reporting each other for any disobedience to their masters. For good measure, to ensure that the person is eclipsed altogether, I might require everyone to cover up their faces. Then, when they finally emerged from their homes, they would find themselves in a personless world of faceless beings, 
what the philosopher Martin Buber called the it world, in which everyone is reduced to a third personal entity. In each of these cases, I would have fulfilled the primary imperative of bringing about a slave settlement, namely the eclipsing of the human person. Now, I'm not insisting that the events of the last couple of years need to be seen as a deliberate and conscious conspiracy of a technocratic elite to unperson the world's population, although I happen to think it would be a mistake to rule out such a thesis. Nonetheless, we do well to recall Maestra's famous maxim that the revolution leads men far more than men lead it. What I mean is that the emergence of a technocratic elite, themselves slaves to appetite, overseeing the transition of the populace into a slave settlement, is likely not so much the cause of our current maladies, but the effect of something much deeper, namely the retreat of the world from grace. The subterranean conviction in what I've said here, then, is that person denotes the condition of the individual human being who has transcended the slavery that is proper to his nature outside the order of grace. It is not a foregone conclusion that persons will remain as the context in which they emerged is eroded and replaced with the context in which the natural slave necessarily eclipses the person. Whilst Speyman locates the origins of our concept of personhood in the solving of theological problems, it is plausible that the reception of person as an experienced mode by which we relate to one another has come about not by the propositional knowledge entailed by those theological concepts, but by the embodied immersion in the tradition to which those concepts belong. True religion presented like this is not primarily a set of doctrines to which adherents assent. An understanding of religion that in any case risks reducing God to an abstract category about which we can gather information. Of course, for the religious believer, doctrines are of significance for relatedness with God, just as knowing truths and disbelieving untruths about one's friend is important for maintaining the friendship. Nonetheless, no true friendship can be reduced to knowledge of facts about the friend. Religion, framed like this, is chiefly the transformation of human nature by supernature in the establishment of liturgical polities. That is, at least, what Dawson suggests. So what are my solutions to the problems we face as we move into the next epoch of Satan's encroaching principality. <laughs> Here, actually, I must commend the very fine work of the Latin Mass Society of England and Wales, which, in a way, presents a solution in a concentrated form, because, actually, there is no solution besides the sacraments, the liturgical life, humane learning, friendship, family local attachment, and all the many good things of this world that Christ has redeemed by the shedding of his blood, all by which the human person 
has been unveiled. This podcast was brought to you by the Latin Mass Society. We hope you enjoyed it and would appreciate your rating and podcast on the platform you are using. If you would like to find out more, do visit our website and consider joining us or giving us a donation.